Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. For the last week and a half, your intrepid Film Comment crew has been watching, writing, and podcasting around the clock from this year's virtual Sundance Film Festival. We hope you've been enjoying our coverage so far. More is on the way this week. For today's episode, which is the final one in our Sundance 2022 podcast series, we invited Film Comment contributors Abby Sun and Violet Luca for an overview of the festival that was. We talked about standouts like We Met in Virtual Reality, Dos Estaciones, I Didn't See You There, Leonor Will Never Die, Every Day in Kaimuki, and many more. Be sure to catch up on all our Sundance 2022 podcasts and dispatches on filmcomment.com. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Film Comment Letter. So Sundance is over. It ended on Friday with an award ceremony, and we spent the last couple of days catching up on more movies. And we've gathered a couple of our favorite critics who have braved the Sundance uh, blizzards with us to come help us wrap up the festival and reflect on on this year's showcase for independent cinema. Yes, I hope nobody has any sprained ankles from slipping on the icy streets of Park City, Utah. No, just kidding. Or New York City. Yeah, I was going to say, we escaped the snowstorms of Utah for the great, you know, East Coast blizzard of 2022. The bomb cyclone. It was just blowing snow, I think. I wasn't that afraid of it. So now you've heard their voices, but who are they? (laughs) Who is giving you the weather report on a film podcast? I ain't scared of snow. Name yourselves. Identify yourselves. <laughs> uh, I'm Violet Luca. I'm a web editor at Harper's Magazine. I'm a freelance film critic. Used to be the host of this podcast and do other things for Film Comment Magazine. Glad to be back. Welcome back, Violet and Abby. Hi, everyone. I'm Abby Sun. I'm a freelance film critic and independent programmer. I curate a biweekly screening series at the Brattle Theater called The Dockyard. I'm also a researcher at the MIT Open Dock Lab. I do a whole bunch of things. I also edit a publication about immersive media, immersive nonfiction storytelling called Immerse, surprisingly enough. Glad to be back. Very credentialed guests, as you can all gather. Speaking of immersive media, and Abby, I would be uh, curious to hear your take on this since this is kind of a beach that you edit uh, within. Um, One of the, I think, sort of sleeper hits of the festival from what I could make out was We Met in Virtual Reality, which I was actually quite interested in, um, and I found it surprisingly appealing, uh, particularly because it took me a long time to figure out that it was a documentary, not while watching, as in I I didn't realize that it was a documentary. And when I heard that and read the description, I was very intrigued by this idea of a documentary uh, filmed within this social media world called VR chat, where people interact with the help of body scanning VR technology. So it allows them to interact in spatially and sort of approximate person to person or social interaction Oh, Abby, well, listeners can't see this, but Abby just showed us the tech that is used in this particular VR chat social network. Yeah. 
pretty bulky. This is what the sensor looks like. So this is like a little black cylinder on a <laughs> stand. Mm-hmm. So it's just like it's a couple, two pieces. Yeah, but you have multiple ones sort of put around you and then it scans you. Oh, and so you just sort of surround yourself. Exactly. It's two. Exactly. So you put them at different places. So it's able to um, identify movement. And then there are sensors that you kind of put on your body and things like that. So like motion capture kind of setup, right? Yep. It's kind of, it's, it's not a total mocap suit, but it, and I'm not sure it actually even uses similar technology, but this is, it, it's so actually the real world, like what people are doing in the real world to be able to um, kind of have that sort of personality, like so much um, personalized body movement in VR chat is quite a lot of uh, setup in real life too. So uh, my, my biggest question is, when people are walking, I, I just couldn't, I just kept imagining people like walking into walls, just like tripping over furniture. Like, w- how do you walk? How do, because the characters in VR chat are moving all around and like running around. And Doesn't one of the dancers say that they broke their nose while, while doing that? Sorry, I like broke out the, the case a little bit early, but what the film actually is, is it's like four different stories interlaced together of different um, quote-unquote communities or types of, uh, basically it follows four kind of main characters or couples, a lot of them are about romantic relationships um, in different corners of VR chat. You can sort of imagine it if you haven't been on VR chat. There's like different worlds and different um, groups, subgroups will meet regularly in certain worlds. And users can build their own worlds, right? That's one of the perks of, of this space. Exactly. And you can build your own avatars. And the really interesting thing about VR chat is that it is really demonetized compared to other, um, in terms of all of the different types of social VR platforms that exist in the world. VR chat is the quote unquote free one. They just introduced a freemium um, paid tier that allows you to store in kind of the application's memory, more avatars. Um, it means that you, instead of having been capped at 25 avatars, you get to store like unlimited avatars. Um, but otherwise, that's like the only thing that you're able to pay for. In fact, during their kind of convention, um, which is a real life meetup for different vendors, um, they're not act- the vendors are not allowed to sell anything that you would be able to use in VR chat. So this is a world that has a pretty kind of interesting collective vision for itself being driven by the makers. Uh, there are a lot of other social VR worlds that have a much more corporate and monetized feel. And this film, the really interesting thing about it too, is that it takes place completely within VR chat. Even when it's the characters, the subjects, the participants are telling stories about real life meetups, because again, uh, more than half of the people featured are in romantic couples, relationships. Um, they are actually reenacting within different VR chat worlds their real life interactions while live narrating this interaction. So it's got this kind of strange, like John Ruchian, um meta textual narrative on top of it. And I really think the film works in those moments. Those were my favorite parts of the film. And that's what I was getting at. A lot of my initial ex- experience of the film was just wonderment at how it worked. And that's kind of why I went in blind and I didn't read up about the technology. I just wanted to encounter that. And 
I think the appeal of the film and the things that I fell for are pretty predictable. You know, it is very uncanny and sort of marvelous to see social interaction approximated in this way. It's sort of like Uncanny Valley, but not quite because it's not as unsettling. It's actually, I found it very humorous and exhilarating to watch people try to kiss and hold hands and try to figure out how that would work in real life, the disjunction between the physical experience and the online manifestation of those interactions. There's also funny parts where like the camera pans and it's like Kermit the Frog is the person asking the question. Things or like just that. like the clipping, like because like people are kind of like falling through objects, but yet they're having a wonderful time. Like there's this great sequence since the beginning where it's like they're... <laughs> everyone's in a car and it's playing low rider and it's like they're, they're just like chilling out and but i mean it's like all these like sexy anime girl avatars yeah and i think the thing that really kept me going beyond this kind of whoa this is so trippy and cool was this disjuncture that abby you sort of hinted at between the uh, documentary aspects of the film and not the fabricated, but this world that obviously is, you know, is fake in in the sense that we're not really getting a kind of uh, visual, you know, reality. And it constantly made me confront my own expectations from documentaries and how much our expectations from documentaries are rooted in this visual voyeurism and in this like desire for visual information, especially in those interview and talking head segments. I felt this need to see these people's faces and I wanted to see what they looked like in real life, what kind of houses they lived in and, you know, how they were emoting while saying certain things because the voices especially have such a strong texture of candor and intimacy in those interview sequences. And the fact that the film never gives you that and never breaks out of uh, VR world and always gives you this sort of half-realized visual uh, field combined with really, like I said, intimate uh, and what feels like unvarnished uh, audio interviews, I found that really sort of experimental and interesting. And it's, of course, it's something that all sorts of experimental documentaries have played with, the disjunction between oral and visual reality and you know there's been animated documentaries and all of that but this is also an extremely crowd-pleasing film um you know it's one of the things that maybe doesn't quite work for me is that the director's interviews with the various participants are pretty surface level so they're about you know how they found happiness after having traumatic experiences in real life through this uh, social world there's no interview where you get like the dark side or like the you know I'm sure there are people who have not had as fulfilling experiences in this world or for whom it's unhealthy to be in VR chat yeah it's it's very romantic but that also does mean that this is like a very crowd-pleasing, feel-good movie that is making you contend with this sort of more experimental um, dissonance between your experience of seeing and listening to documentaries. So that's what I thought was interesting about it. I mean, it is shot in, in a very, like a very traditional document, like, like the editing, the camera work is very much a traditional sort of personal, you know, documentary following a group of people or, you know, exploring a, a small community, picking out a handful of people. 
and uh in couples and kind of getting a little bit closer with them and then moving on to the and then threading these stories together but i i think that devika as your point loomed a little bit larger for me i i thought it was a little bit i didn't i don't want it to be negative necessarily but it leaned a little bit too hard on the experience on vr chat as being purely a space for uh, self-expression and where these people could explore these otherwise invisible aspects of themselves that i thought it just didn't really like question some of the pro metaverse for sure <laughs> yeah it's pro metaverse yeah definitely and it, that made me a little frightened frankly but but also it just was it didn't really question its own presumptions about the value of of vr it didn't question long term like what these people's lives might be like or their relationships how their relationships might play out and it also didn't question like i understand that we want to that it both makes it interesting but also you do want to see like how does it work because that's important both on a technical level but also in terms of actually understanding these people's full experience the point is that you don't know anything about these people except for how they choose to represent themselves in this world that it may not may not be perfect right but the only people we see representing themselves are the people who are they've grown and gotten better so you never like see anything where anybody is like been hurt by access to vr is my point so there's a couple of interesting um kind of um accidental reveals of the slightly darker side of social VR, I would say, in the film. I mean, there's like questions about accessibility that are brought up there. But then second of all, there's like a lap dancing kind of pseudo proposal scene that is really close to the first time that Helping Hands is introduced. And the instructor for that lap dancing performance slash kind of like bar show type thing gives a whole bunch of like safety warnings to the participants about how if anybody is inappropriate to report it to her and that they don't they have a zero you know tolerance policy for those types of behaviors and I do think that a lot of what the film you know for me the what that brings up well two things one is there is this kind of lack of interest in what accountability looks like because it's about the rules that these communities form to protect themselves that's why I was trying to tie this into helping hands it shows all the good things that helping hands does which is teaching um sign language, American sign language via VR chat. But it's a little bit unclear, like the parameters, what is building these communities and what is keeping it together. It doesn't need to do that. But as a result of focusing on the character driven, um, you know, formula, it actually ascribes a lot to the individual that I think is actually from platform politics. Because as I hinted at in the beginning, this is not the only social VR platform. There's a lot of other ones and they have really different characteristics because of the structure of the platform. So it's, it's you know, it's, I guess it's the classic kind of American three-act structure, character-driven documentary problem. It localizes and removes any systemic analysis of anything um, and its politics. And, you know, yeah, I, I would say this did come off as super pro metaverse, which is, I think, the narrative intervention that the filmmaker is trying to make, because in his opinion, there's too much negative coverage of the metaverse. 
And he wants to show something entirely positive. And that's something one of the characters even says, that I wish people wouldn't judge the relationships we form in this space. I think it's true that there is kind of one side which is very moralistic about cyber interactions and spaces that doesn't take into account the ways in which these spaces open up, you know, experiences for disabled folks or folks with other kinds of, you know, identities. For instance, one one scene that, again, I found superficial but still moving, which is sort of my experience of the whole film, was some characters talking about how this space allows them to move around in a way that uh, is amenable to them exploring fluid sexualities and genders without worrying about how they will get gendered. And it's not super simplistic. They do, for instance, recognize that they still get misgendered based on their voices, but they can basically be a bunny and, you know, no one has human correlates for how they look. So I think there is a section of... And maybe this is what the director feels he's speaking to, people who don't recognize these aspects of VR spaces and therefore have a maybe judgmental view of it. But I think, Abby, your point is really important that there is also another side of it which doesn't take into account the material and corporate implications of these spaces. And now that you mentioned that it was demonetized, I think that's very important to know. I think it's very important to know who created the space and what are the terms of engaging with it. I just wished that there was it was a little bit more nuanced in its in its uh, portrayal of of VR chat. I think, but it is what it is, and what it is is a positive portrayal of, the, of VR chat, and it is technically a feat. It is a it is pretty amazing to watch that scene where the person is talking about being misgendered and is a some kind of ferret or something and there's a gizmo character from gremlins hanging out in the background kind of bobbing up and down and there's a hot dog a lo- a talking hot dog and they're all yes. hanging around a, a, a campfire it's kind of like a, it's kind of amazing but and it seems like at first you think oh this is ridiculous and then you're you kind of listen you're listening to what they're saying and you forget how absurd it is that you're listening to a hot dog and a, and a ferret talk about being misgendered and you're just listening to these people as people. My own favorite uh, VR chat avatar is completely non-corporeal. Um, I mean, it has a body. You can't appear in VR chat as something completely, quote unquote, invisible. But my favorite avatar that I prefer is basically just hundreds of floating transparent cubes uh, in the air. Um, that's what I like to appear as myself. We all have to say what ours would be. Mine would be just good vibes good vibes to everybody that's right no, no i'm just kidding i think just fumes. I, I, yeah fumes uh, on that note speaking of fumes another film about tequila and the making of tequila the distillation of the spirit the variety of mezcal that is called tequila is dos estaciones which is I, I which is a movie that i actually liked quite a bit it is a fiction feature from Mexico. Uh, Dos Estaciones, directed by uh, Juan Pablo Gonzalez, is the director's second feature. Um, his previous one was Caballarengo. And this film, Dos Estaciones, follows the proprietress of a tequila distillery and factory, uh, Una Fabrica, in, the, in western Mexico, in the region from which tequila is is mailed to the United States and elsewhere. It's a very meditative 
and uh, slow moving narrative that sort of follows this woman's struggles to maintain her her business against looming corporate encroachment and agave thieves and and weather bad weather um and i think what i liked most about this movie was the way it weaves in this secondary storyline about a hairdresser in this in the town and we have these scenes where the where the narrative just kind of drifts off to the side and follows this hairdresser's life and you begin to see some um parallels between the hairdresser's life and the uh proprietress the tequila factory owner um although they're not very explicit but i really uh i thought that was well done um did anybody else see this one i actually went into this film thinking it was fiction this seems to be a recurring theme in my sundance viewing I'm thinking it was documentary yeah, thinking it was documentary, and it actually took me about 15, 20 minutes to realize that it was a, a fiction feature. And that speaks to, I think, a kind of, what kind of tone he achieves, uh, and a kind of, you know, intimacy that doesn't feel forced, but at the same time feels organic, I guess, and a kind of fluidity in the way that he's using natural light and settings and spaces. His previous feature, the nonfiction feature, is also shot in a very similar way and very um, is very attentive to the way in which faces are captured and landscapes are captured, particularly in relation to voice and sound. Yeah, I mean, I do think that a lot of the film's form and the way that it's edited, because like Cabalarenco, it uses uh, these sorts of like observational scenes of town functions and fairs and the landscape, all of that as the connective tissue between more dramatic or plot-driven moments. I would also say that, you know, as Maria, the main character, the owner of this tequila factory and distillery, which is called Dos Estaciones, um, also the title of the film. So she's played by Teresa Sanchez the actress but name is Maria in the film or Senora Maria as everybody around her calls her and it's like even the plot of the film has this traditional plot that we would find in salvage ethnography because the distillery is on the brink of collapse she owes a whole bunch of debt um, and then the appearance of a new person in town um, a young woman who you know there's this ambiguous kind of romantic and sexualized charge between the two of them she's this beautiful young woman who seems to be everything that um, Maria needs in order to help perhaps try to save the factory because this woman just happens to have experience working in a more modern tequila factory and distillery Um, but it never kind of takes the cheap um, I think plot driven way out um, like everything is moving at a slower pace there are two major events that happen during the film um, that kind of sink or um, put the lid on the coffin so to speak for the prospects of this tequila factory and in the end it's got this kind of ambiguous until it's revealed um, the next day by the plot um, kind of a local radio or TV announcement in the town, um, what happened um, in the end. And it kind of, it opens with an over-the-shoulder tracking shot of Maria walking, um, surveying her domain, and it ends with a tracking shot of her surveying her domain. And throughout, like Clint said, it reads in the story of this hairdresser who 
is also, um, well, she's openly queer. She's an openly trans woman um, who finds love. um, And also she's making such good money with her hair salon and makeup business that she's actually expanding. Um, So it really is kind of like this reversal of fortune. Um, And from what I understand, it's also this, um, uh, it's like a counter narrative to even within Mexico to, um, I guess it's the same way that we have this urban rural divide in the U.S. to um, expectations and stereotypes that people from Jalisco, this uh, province, are backwards and conservative and machismo and anti-career and all of that. Um, but I, I think the film is really like successful in terms of the tropes that it adopts. It uses, it has a lot of the same visual language that we see, I think, in um, quote unquote hybrid films from Latin America, from Mexico. And I think it deploys them extremely well. I also think even though it kind of looks like slow cinema, it's got these tracking shots. It's actually edited quite snappily. Um, so while it's been as slow cinema or slow cinema-esque um, and it's been described there are process shots and process sequences in the film I think they're really like af- efficient and some very spectacular scenes too which are filmed with like a, a sense of understatement and for instance the climactic uh, sequence that Abby were referencing I won't give it away but it's very dramatic. I guess that's what I'm trying to epic. say. It's very dramatic in a way. Sorry, what? Epic. Yeah, it is actually. Ep- it, the, there, there are these epic moments that still fit in with the more low-key and you know minute focus of the rest of the film. I mean, he's able to thread together these small and big moments very fluidly in, in one aesthetic um, that's quite remarkable. And there's that bravura tracking shot at the end too, before the final tracking shot following the uh, hairdresser, which goes on for you know a very long time and you see all these little aspects of the village life. But as she goes to uh, Butcher and then I think to like another grocery store. But um, yeah, it's quite a beautiful film. Really mad at myself for missing this. Uh. <laughs> I think there's going to be opportunities to see it. I, I think it's a... Very, very solid film. I just want to add two notes. Um, reasons why I was particularly impressed by the film. That one, which is like in the text of the film, I saw a couple of other films that kind of had similar themes. It's about a way of life ending, lush shots of the landscape, like a real understanding of environmental and natural sensorial forces that are affecting the story. What really impressed me about Dos Estaciones, though, is that it also kind of casts a wide net. The critique also touches upon NAFTA and international trade and um, the encroachment of, you know, American celebrities into the tequila business, the loss of, you know, the artisanal way of life being driven by many things. And it should be noted also that um, Teresa Sanchez, the actress that plays Maria, I don't actually know her background, but she definitely looks like she's of indigenous descent. And so it is a darker skinned woman also that's playing this character. And um, it's just, it's bouncing a lot within it, um, not making a big deal out of it. With a very light touch. Yeah, and I thought that was super well done. And the issues of sexual identity and the the tension between uh, Maria and the younger woman, but also the, yeah, I think that, and yeah, 
the this this idea of machismo maria herself kind of she's real tough and she's real tight-lipped you know she's very quiet and stoic throughout the film as these things happen to her you don't see a lot of uh, emotion until you do you can't really tell unless you do a close reading of the credits the the setting of the film the tequila distillery is actually owned by the filmmaker's parents um and actually most of the people in the film um are real life people who live in the town and who work at the tequila factory. So the woman who actually plays the love interest to Maria is that factory's actual manager and administrator. She's great. Yeah. It's actually, it's impossible for me to tell that this was her first time acting period. um, And this is her real life job. Um, But Teresa Sanchez is a professional actress. Um, she was in a whole bunch of Nico Pareda's films. She had a supporting role in The Chambermaid as well. And um, But this is supposedly her first leading role in a feature. And the way that they shot the film is actually over almost five years. Uh, there's material supposedly in the film that was shot in 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. And then they did a three-month shoot for a lot of the plot points in 2021 um, during the pandemic. But um, the way that they also developed the film between the professional actors, I believe there's two. Um, The second one being the guy who becomes the boyfriend for the um, hair salon owner. And apparently the way that they also like had the professional actors and the non-professional actors, the people who lived in town, you know, text and actually develop their relationship in real life in order to portray something um, on screen. So it's got this interesting kind of co-creative and co-writing process. A lot of apparently the scenarios were made by the filmmaking team and the three credited writers, but the actual dialogue itself was developed with uh, all the non-professional actors. And I do feel like that intimacy really emerges as like, a dimension of its own across uh, his past films and this film. Intimacy is a word we throw around a lot while talking about films, especially hybrid or non-fictional films. But here there's just such a sense of, um, you can feel this kind of affinity between the camera and what it's capturing, whether it's landscape or people. Um, and so I, I didn't know this background. I hadn't looked into the press notes yet, but it makes so much sense that he he, I guess, might have grown up or, or or spent a lot of time in the space and among these people. And there's just this way in which, and this is what I said when I saw Caballerango, there's this way in which it's um, drawing on these intimate relationships, but never seems to cannibalize them that I find quite impressive. Yeah, I was most impressed, I think, by the <laughs> fact that it takes place in virtual reality. Another virtual, no, it doesn't. I'm just kidding. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Speaking of formal play, I would love to talk about Leonore Will Never Die, which is uh, not a hybrid film, but definitely playing uh, with, you know, Pinoy action films and other sorts of magical realist elements and 
kind of conventional action movies and all the all these different sources and it makes such a rich lovely text Abby, I know you saw it. I would say actually the film that it reminded me a lot of while I was watching, which I do consider a hybrid film. Um, I, I, I do think that um, the same way that I would classify Dosis Daciones, even though it has hybrid elements in it, I would classify it as a fiction film because it is a made up scenario. The lead is a professional actress. Um, same thing I would say Leonor Will Never Die is absolutely a fiction film, but it reminded me a lot of Symbiopsychotaxoplasm because the way that the film is structured is it's well, it's completely fictional, though. It's like not ambiguous, like, is this reality or is this fake? The The plot concerns um, Leonor, uh, a director who's trying to get a film made. Well, she's like, well, I would say, I feel like the background is more like she's out of the game. She's been out of the game for years. Right, 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 right. And, right, then, and yeah. then she sees this ad for like a, a screenplay competition and she like dusts off an old script. And then you sort of find out why. And like, she's just, uh, please continue. I'm sorry. <laughs> I just love this movie no, so much. No, yeah, exactly. Well, the beginning of the film, yeah, she gets knocked on the head. With a TV. With a TV. <laughs> and rakes up inside her script, which is unfinished. And then therefore can, through her own actions, it's got like two parallel storylines, like two parallel timelines. It's a fantasy film and it's a fantasy like in real life and in the film um and then also like in, in the film there are like shenanigans that happen there's like a whole bunch of you know it's like a, a lot of conflict the plot itself is also I mean it's like a cross between like a fantasy and a crime caper and goons it apparently takes a lot of tropes of like serial fantasy dramas that appear on this is a Filipino film um, that appear on Pinoy television and it also incorporates like real life but also some of them are recreated so there are fake and real BTS scenes of the actual director of Leonor Will Never Die talking with her editor with assistants that work on the film the crew so this is what I mean that's got this element of symbiopsychotaxoplasm to me where it actually those scenes it's actually not true uh, clear to me what is scripted and what is real and they did you know get everybody's permission apparently the, it was the editor's idea to incorporate these real life elements into the film but it really works it's like this total madcap. It's it looks like the most low budget film that was in the world dramatic competition. It's so wildly inventive. Um, yeah. I don't even know. There's so many scenarios to even talk about in the film, like so many scenes. I'm so glad, Abby, that you did not compare this to like Uncle Boonmi who couldn't recall his past lives because I feel like that's where everyone is gonna reach. And I'm not like obviously I love a Peter Pan where Seth cool. I love him. I talked to him at 7 a.m. one time for Film Comet. It was like a dream. It was like living in one of his movies. But like, please come up with a different vocabulary. Like, don't do this comparison game when you're talking about these, you know, just because they're in roughly the same geographic area. So could thank you. But get ready for lots of that, uh, dear listeners. In the coming months, her screenplay is highly autobiographical and... Because, you know, again, she was like at the top of the world making all these different movies. Uh, her two sons, Rudy and Ronwaldo, would star in a lot of them. And then there's this onset accident which takes Ronwaldo's life. And the main character in the, in the film that she's written and that she ends up inside of 
is also named Ronwaldo. And her son, the ghost of her son, Ronwaldo, visits her before she falls into the movie. And it's like some, and at first you're kind of like, what is it? What has happened? And then he kind of like turns on the fan, but everyone is like super chill about him being around. Like his dad's like, well, son, you know, I know if you came back, it must be serious. Like, I would just also like to add that the actual source material, like what the is like the visual, like the video that's in the film is super heterogeneous yes. uh, as well. Um, it's got like, so it's not so weird that like BTS footage and all of that shows up. There's like this brain scan imaging oh thing, God, yeah. which I couldn't tell what it was. And it was actually an interview that Aaron Hunt did with the director for Filmmaker Magazine that even told me what that is. Um, and apparently that's like AI generated that an artist made for the filmmaker out of 500 different real brain scans. Yeah. Well, there's also like when she gets hit on the head with the TV. So the that I mean, I feel like describing that sequence is like crucial to understanding the film because it starts off like this very sort of like, you know, documentary to um, fictional film conventional where it's like this guy's going to go sell the TV and his wife is like, what? Don't sell the TV. And she's like, you know, and they have a little argument about it arguing over the tv he's like what the soap opera is gonna feed you and then the tv falls out of the out of the window hits leonor on the head and then there's like this little like early 80s video art sequence where she's like falling against this giant like video like blown up video backdrop and then it it goes from there and it's it's like this and there's kind of like a poetic element to that part too like it's it's just like, it is, I mean, oh my, it's... And the ending. The ending, well, more to the point, I was going to say, the ending is, I love the ending. But I also love that it's, like, funny. Because it's, like, <laughs> there's this one part where she's in the movie, and it's, like, so, like, there, this this woman named Majestica, who's, like, this performer slash, you know, mall of this terrible, this terrible gang guy. They go to a, you know, Ronwaldo, the movie Ronwaldo, and Majestica go to this hotel room. And uh, they're, you know, like they're kind of fooling around and then they get interrupted, interrupted by Leonor who like farts. <laughs> it's like, it's just like, it has a great sense of humor and it's, it's like doing all this really funny formal play, like very high-minded formal play, but it's also not afraid to just go really goofy with stuff. Sounds like a lot of, it sounds really good. Yeah. One of Leonor's coping mechanisms, the character's coping mechanisms, is hiding herself in the bathroom and pretending not to hear, like, all the people looking for her. And I will say, though, the camera angle, like, this is the thing that might be shocking for American viewers. Like, the camera angle is very unflattering um, in those scenes. It's, like, low and shooting up. When I first saw that, I was like, oh, my God, like, what are we seeing? Um, And so it's really just got this, like, super different visual language. I think for like a first feature film, like kudos. I mean, I don't know. It was just, and again, I love anything at Sundance that's going to be funny, which is uh, honk, which I, which is why I also saw Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul. Then you must have really loved Cha Cha Real Smooth. I Cha Cha didn't see it. Uh. <laughs> it's it slipped right by me. It sashayed away. <laughs> Which was not actually that funny. <laughs> More um, heartstring tugging, perhaps. With some like one-liners and some chuckles, yeah. Chuckles, yeah. Is it what kind of was it like the art house stuff where it's like, huh? No. <laughs> when you know you're an art house, when you hear people, you hear people going, huh? 
No, that, that's usually when the, that's when they laugh. That's when they're laughing out of recognition for some sort of like <laughs> you know <laughs> trick that the filmmaker does. That's one flavor of the art house laugh. Yeah, <laughs> smug little. Right. Uh, oh. Ha of huh. recognition. Oh, uh, uh, excellent use of the iris referencing silent film, and that yeah, I see. I'm catching the Buster Keaton reference with this. Yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> I do think that we all agree that I didn't see you there in the documentary section was an excellent film. Uh, I know that Devika, you're a big fan. I mean, I it just I just uh, caught it by surprise thanks to Abby's recommendation because of a dispatch she wrote. I you know I had a list of movies I had to get to and I decided to prioritize that yesterday. And I think I I definitely I think I saw even less than Abby and Violet, but it is by far the best film that I saw at this year's Sundance. And what a delightful surprise! So. It's by this filmmaker, Reed Davenport, who is disabled and a wheelchair user. And it's the whole film is shot from his point of view. And the central gambit is that he's made films before, but this is the first time he's using a camera he can operate by himself. And because of that, what he's decided to do is make a film that shows his experience of the world from his point of view, but does not show him. So it's a very kind of classic uh, you know, filmic subversion where it's saying, I refuse to be looked at, but you will see the world uh, through my gaze. But the way that the film takes this really kind of subjective positioning, but folds it within, I thought, an absolutely thoughtful, layered, erudite reflection on the world and how the world accommodates art, how the world or accommodates... Doesn't. Or doesn't, yeah, sorry. You know, I mean, that's what I mean. Like, how the world makes space or doesn't make space for disabled individuals, for disabled artists, for art in general. I mean, it it turns into a really, a meditation on urban experience as well. And this might sound sort of insane, but I thought of it as a an intersectional, disability-focalized Riddles of the Sphinx, this famous movie by Laura Mulvey, which tries to put into action her idea of the male gaze and tries to basically subvert these codified ways of looking that, according to her, use women as objects and fetishize women for the sake of, uh, you know, cinematic pleasure. And I almost thought that this was that kind of conceit, except so entertaining and watchable. I mean, no shade to Laura Mulvey, but Riddles of the Sphinx is extremely boring and difficult to watch for me. Dude, I, I let me tell you when I was in film school and in, in undergrad, we watched that. I never, I because I was taking a gender in film class. Yeah, probably like eighty percent of the class fell asleep, but they were all dudes. Hmm. Mm. Well, I was not a dude, and like what I'm trying to say is, what's remarkable about this film is that it is taking what is a polemic conceit. It's taking what is a pretty almost academic idea of flipping the seeing being seen visibility invisibility dynamic that a lot of people from marginalized communities are caught in particularly disabled folks whose life experience is simultaneously invisibilized but they're also fetishized you know they're the subject of stares and 
it relates us through his embodied experience and you actually see the world from his point of view which if you're an able-bodied person who's able to navigate the city without ever thinking about ramps and how to get on a bus with a wheelchair and you know how how people respond when you ask them for basic accommodations like get out of the way move this thing that is on the ramp out of my way and people act as if you're being entitled to experience all of that alongside him while he's offering um reflections on the history of the freak show and the circus which is precipitated by the fact that while he's moving through somewhere in the bay area oakland oakland there is in his neighborhood a circus tent being constructed and the town he comes from in connecticut is a town where pt barnum is from and has a statue of pt barnum one of the worst men to ever live i don't believe (laughs) the great showman or whatever the fuck that that peter the hugh jackman movie greatest showman the greatest showman yeah yeah and he's quoting diane arbus um you know diane (laughs) Arbus, like something she said, it's like honestly a very nasty uh, quote from her about uh, photographing quote unquote freaks. It's just all this historical, critical, personal reflection playing over this experiential film that is also very beautiful to watch. I mean, there are times when he turns the camera down to the sidewalk as he's, uh, you know, going over it with his wheelchair and there's sound and music laid over it and you see the color of the sidewalk and the color of the stones change as he's moving then he'll flip to the sky and now you're you know you're kind of tracking through the street with your gaze up at the sky and the way that um, sound and music is layered over it and voiceover is layered layered over it and the way he uses reflections and you know uh, glass that he encounters on the streets well and it's diegetic music right i mean there's no there's no tinkling synth- synthesizer score to this. There's a couple of sequences where it is imposed soundtrack, but the I, I, I just want to highlight too, it's not only about visualizing, I think, disability, because the director, Reed Davenport, he has cerebral palsy. So he's also audibly disabled. And the voiceover is read out loud in his voice, in his um, cadence. And also the there's additional sound recorded by Ernst Carroll, who is the former sensory ethnography lab manager and also this sound designer and mixer who has worked on so many films at this point. Um, And it's really known for having like a subtle but rich complex touch when it comes to building out soundscapes. Um, They had Ernst hired to work on this, but I would say also, um, I guess this is the point to say, I I have written about this film in a dispatch, um, but I have binaural hearing loss myself. So when it comes to a virtual film festival like Sundance or any platform where closed captions are available, I do prefer to watch films with closed captions. And this is a film that takes every um, kind of point of disability, deaf community, neurodivergent community into account in the making of the film. The uh, audio descriptions in the closed caption have an enormous amount of descriptive personality and power. How refreshing to read these descriptions when you're used to like foreign language, humming sound. And the detail of the in the in of the film is pretty in the images. I mean it's just and detail meaning like not in individual shots, but the the what is chosen to be what he chooses to include. It's not simply like the moments of his life where he encounters difficult 
pro, you know, problems, you know, because of his disability. It's uh, just moments of captured, uh, fleeting beauty, and even just banal banality of his day to day life, and it and it kind of is uh, edited in such a way that it builds towards something really beautiful. Um, and it's also a great Bay Area. It's it's real real Bay Area heads. Like you get to you get to shout out corners. There's little landmarks. It opens with a shot of Bart. Well, yeah, he's just talking about riding the Bart. Yeah. But I mean, I love, I mean, I think, you know, just to go back to what Devika was saying, I love the, just the basic intervention of reimagining what the eyeline shot is. I think it's, it's well worth watching for that alone. And then there's all this other stuff that is just really makes it a rich text. It's a goodie. It sure is. Yeah. And it is the winner of the um, best directing prize in the U.S. documentary competition, too. So, um, you know, frequently, I think, considered as the number two prize in, in that competition. I like. I think we're going to start categorizing movies as goodies and baddies. <laughs> Rot, rock, or ruled. Bring that yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's one more film that I appreciated a lot, Alika Tengen's Every Day in Kaimuki, which is in the next section. Wonderful. So this is an actual hybrid film. Um, I think way more hybrid than, um, for instance, a film like Dosis Dacionis, because this is a completely non-professional uh, cast. It includes the director's own friends playing versions of themselves. There are two people who are not playing versions of themselves, but they are still non-professional actors that the director has worked with in the past. And he is a native Hawaiian director who makes films that really kind of take indigenous um, and Hapa native Hawaiian perspectives into account. Alika Tengen and uh, I think a lot of other directors, even if they don't, if, even if they aren't of native Hawaiian descent, but people who live um, and have grown up in Hawaii who are making films there right now. Um, this would include um, Chris Yogi, who had a film, I Was a Simple Man at Sundance last year, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, they are working on counter narratives of Hollywood using Hawaii as a backdrop for stories. So for instance, in this film, there's not a single shot of a beach. It's really a quite different depiction of Hawaii. Uh, the main character, um, Nas, played by a man named Nas in real life, playing a version of himself. The film is, um, apparently it was, the idea was sparked when Nas tells the director that he's thinking of moving away from Hawaii and going to New York. Um, and they decided to construct a film out of this period of time while he's planning on moving to New York. And basically the plot of the film is, will he or will he not move? to New York um, and his friends are placing budgets on it. He seems to have doubts. He has a long-term girlfriend. They are not really getting along. She's She has doubts about, cause she's been accepted to Pratt for a ceramics program. And she's like going back and forth a lot too. And I think like her, like, again, that's what makes the, the guys, like his friends being like, is he gonna do it or not? Especially cruel. So you understand, like when there's a sort of this big confrontation between them, you again, it's totally earned. Again, it's just this very simple premise, but it's totally well executed. Yeah, I will say like that confrontation scene because this the bets that his friends 
his friends place bets on whether or not he's actually going to go to New York or not. And that's set up pretty early in the film's runtime. And it explodes in this confrontation scene and also in a night of bad decisions. Yes. It's the only way that I can describe it. Um, it's like this epic failure and total deterioration of a night. And then it shows the day after. And this is when the film really won me over because it then had this like sweetness and this grace to it. And like, I don't know, emotionally developed manhood <laughs> that is so rarely depicted in like films of millennial ennui. I was incredibly impressed. Yeah, because again, it's like he's not just like a dumbass. He's not like some dumbass man child. Like he's try he's he's trying like in a way that is I, I find refreshing. And even like the way, you know, the things that happen with his girlfriend, how those turn out, I think it shows a very um different portrait. And you know, not necessarily like like a not all men sort of thing, but you know what I mean. It's just sort of like okay, here you know, millennials constantly accused of being emotionally immature. Here's a film that's not about that at all. Um, and I mean, I'll, I'll just also say, without ruining the ending, I love the ending. It's very funny. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah, we won't ruin like what happens, but I think the film resolves the issue and. A way that really actually felt authentic to me. Absolutely. I will say also that um, Alika Tengen uh, also just won an enormous 500. I mean, it's not enormous in the grand scheme of like Hollywood studio funding. But for indies. But for indies, he won a half a million dollar grant from Array, an Array and Google partnership to turn his last film, a short called Molokai Found. Um, which is currently streaming on Criterion Channel, into a feature. And it stars somebody who is in Everyday in Kaimuki. He is uh, one of the two people that are not playing themselves, um, but he plays basically the job trainee that Nas is um, helping to replace him. Who's a great character. He's a great character. So that actor is the star of this short, and it's being turned into a feature um, with the help of Array and uh, Google. Well, half a milli, you could probably make uh, like three independent movies with that. <laughs> or you could make like one two hundredth of a Hollywood blockbuster. So. There you go. All about, there's no accounting for taste. Well, that sounds like a great film. And I think we should end on a positive note. So let's wrap up our Sundance coverage here. Although we still have dispatches coming to the uh, film comment letter this week one of them by Violet another by Chris Bachman so we'll be covering some more movies Abby has a bunch of dispatches out in Filmmaker magazine so plenty more from this crew for all of you to dig into but hereby we conclude our Sundance podcast streak thank you both so much thank you guys both so much for joining it was fun as always thank you thank you for having me The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.